So Paul is given to some exalted exclamations, is he not? Uh, moments of insight, and this is one such moment, I think. It's a benediction. It expresses profound insight into the revelation of God that occurred through the people of Israel, contained in the scriptures, that is wanting to say something to the whole world. And Paul says that a mystery has now been revealed. What is that mystery? It takes a bit of unpacking, so bear with me for a moment. You see, from the very beginning of humanity, it seems, if the archaeological evidence is to be believed, human communities have made use of sacrifice to safely control community-threatening violence. When violent disruption threatened to tear apart the community, there was a mechanism that settled those tensions and reunified the community as one. And this mechanism was sacrifice. Nobody knows how it was discovered. It was probably discovered somewhat serendipitously. Something that accidentally worked proved to be effective and then kept, they kept doing it because it was effective. And whilst it was effective, it was by no means understood. Initially, all evidence indicates it was human sacrifice that was practised. A victim selected from the community offered to the gods to save the community from the chaos and destruction of unbridled anger, which again was attributed to the gods. The threat was so great and so beyond the community's control, they figured it must have been the deities that were responsible for what was going on. Now, this notion is so ingrained in religious thinking that many consider it to be perhaps the most powerful thing of all. I remember years ago, and I'm very grateful for this interaction on Facebook, the one thing I remain uh, grateful for about Facebook is this interaction I had with a Sydney University, not Sydney University, but one of the universities in Sydney. There was a Christian ethics professor there, and he took issue with something I said on Facebook. Normally I'm not grateful for that, but on this occasion we had a really long-ranging, wide-sweeping, profound conversation about beliefs. And he kept saying, no, there had to be a sacrifice to pay for the sin. That's what had to happen. And my challenge to him was, where does that belief come from? Who says sacrifice pays for sin. And if that rule is so powerful that even God must obey it, does that not make sacrifice your actual God? Because it's the power to which all must then submit, even God. You see, I think a closer reading of the Hebrew scriptures reveals that it's not the anger and the violence of the gods which people need to be protected from, It's the unbridled anger and violence between and within the community. That remains the clear and present danger to the community. The brewing violence is so dangerous and so overwhelming and threatening that it's perceived to be something larger than the community itself. Now, of course, there are in our world natural disasters. We do have earthquakes and floods and famines. But when it comes to actual violence perpetrated against human communities... It's always done by other humans, right? 
And this is the uncanny thing about this revelation. It is both self-evident and difficult to see at the same time. Even if we accept that others might react violently in certain circumstances, we tend not to want to accept that that might be true about ourselves. And the key revelation of the gospel is, I think, when it comes to violence between humans and God, it's the humans that do the violence to God, not the other way around. And this is something that God revealed step by step through the history of the people Israel. And there were key moments along the way that are indicators, I think. The violent... um, interaction between Cain and Abel. Remember that very early story, an ancient story in the tradition of Israel where Cain slays his brother Abel because he's jealous of him. And normally when one slays another, there's retributive justice. The the other family members of the one who's slaying gang up on the one who did the slaying and there's all sorts of bloodshed. But in scripture we have this little saying that holds back That violence. Behold, this is Genesis chapter 4, verse 14. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, says Cain, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain that no one finding him would slay him. And this breaks the chain of escalating violence. So it's a a mitigating factor. It's a, a circuit breaker, if you like. Then we come to Abraham, who is called to offer a human sacrifice in a very stressful moment. And he hears God say it should be his son and heir. Genesis chapter 22, the beginning of that, says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And we're horrified by the fact that God might command someone to sacrifice their son But in the context, there was going to be a sacrifice. And God's saying, if you're going to offer a child, let it be your child. And then we're not so surprised when Abraham decides that actually maybe child sacrifice isn't the thing after all. And he finds a goat and offers a goat instead of a child. And the consequence of this is Israel develops a highly codified system of liturgical practices involving animal sacrifices and rules out human sacrifice forever. And that's a very significant step change. But even this system of sacrifices comes in for quite harsh critique from the prophets. And I'll pick up something that Micah says, a a popular passage from Micah 6.8, which you might have heard before. Micah almost mockingly says, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? And the Bible up to that point would have said, well, yes. But he's saying, should I? And the answer here is supposed to be no. Uh, With yielding calves, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? 
Shall I present my firstborn for my religious acts? And this is getting very shaky ground because all the Jews are going, you're crazy, man. Or the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Not these sacrifices, but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And I think we can see another kind of reiteration of this sentiment when we see Jesus overturn the tables in the temple and scattering the sacrificial animals in the courtyard. See, worshipping the one true God has never been about offering sacrifices for sin. This truth alone means that you do not have to be of Israel to be counted among God's people. The door is open to the glory of God's kingdom for all. And I think Micah here is indicating the true nature of what faithfulness looks like, the true things that God is interested in. And Paul describes it as the obedience of faith. And this is not really another set of things, instructions to be obedient to. It's not like the law of Moses was updated and the new version is called the law of faith. Uh, obedience of faith is an entirely new way All the principles of engagement have changed. It's to do with the conviction of the heart. In some way, uh, faith liberates us from the strictures of law. We don't have to find the rule book, learn all the rules and stick to them. And that's kind of nice, right? But at the same time, this way of faith, I think, asks much more of us than simply forcing ourselves to comply to a set of cultural patterns or behaviours. The obedience of faith calls us to engage with our tradition with far more depth than, than a simple or superficial reading. Obedience of faith means to allow the scriptural tradition to expose, deconstruct and reform our very heart's convictions and desires. And that is no easy process. It is a complete reconditioning of what we consider to be most important. I remember this happening in a very small way very early on in my discipleship. Um, This reconditioning of my heart, I started to want to be helpful. I wasn't a particularly helpful child at home. Mum would always be griping about how much work she had to do in the kitchen and the cleaning and da-da-da, and us kids kind of went, yeah, you're the mum, that's what you do, you know. And then I got converted. I became a Christian. And actually, I thought, no, I want to help. I could have knocked my mother over with a feather when at the age of 18, I was already a man, for goodness sake, I offered to do the dishes after dinner. And she kind of went, what, what's the angle here, Dave? And I wasn't working an angle. I wasn't scared of punishment or doing it because I thought I really ought to or trying to curry favour or anything like that. I just realized I could help. And that was the beginning of a reconditioning of my heart. I wasn't obeying any new law. I was being obedient to the faith. Now, you might be wondering, what on earth does that mean for me, for you? Essentially, it means, I think, learning the ways of God's people. These ways are modelled in the stories of God's people in Scripture, the people of Israel and the early church. They come to a fullness in stories about Jesus in the Gospel. 
and they are also reflected upon in the outflow of that in the epistles that we have in our New Testament. These stories challenge our natural instincts and call us to a new and in, in a new and different direction because they call us to follow Jesus. And this is all to the glory of Christ. And I wonder what you think of when you think of glory. What ideas come up for you? Sometimes for me I think of big processions or you know, long limos. They're kind of a bit glorious. Or large residences, glamorous holidays in exotic locations, beautiful gowns and jewellery and nice gadgets, that sort of thing. Jesus does not conform to our assumptions of what glory looks like. From the moment of his birth in a little cattle enclosure to the confrontations with the religious authorities and then his peripatetic life. He walked around everywhere, never staying too long in one place, and ultimately his humiliating execution by the authorities of his day. No one today would call that a glorious life. We are taught particular understandings of glory by our culture these, day glory, these days, glory seems to be most approximate to raw power, whether that's in the form of beauty, which can be a form of power, wealth or military might. And Jesus offers us an alternate understanding of glory. And it's glimpsed in the unguarded and vulnerable moments when love is shared. I glimpsed it a moment ago when Prasuna came up and referenced the gift. There's a glory in that. The most profound glory is experienced in the act of self-giving, when for no other reason than we love someone, that we decide to give ourselves to them in some way. So much happens in this dynamic that cannot happen in any other way. We have the opportunity to participate in God's life-giving love. We engage our creative power as those made in the image of the creator God and we can bring life to other people. And I put it to you, there's nothing better in all of creation that we can do. This is part of the mystery that is now revealed. Not that we put up with a lack of glory now so that we can be rewarded sometime in the future like a deferred um, gratification plan, now we're talking about a transformed appreciation of what true glory is, and it's not found in the places commonly touted by our culture. It is found in the ways modelled by Jesus. A few weeks ago, when it was safe to go to the northern beaches, I was sitting in a cafe with a friend of mine, uh, sitting outside a cafe actually, at a car park in a shopping centre, and uh, I noticed a woman standing there on the phone holding a baby, standing by a car, and she was there for quite a long time on the phone with the baby outside the car. It was a warm day. She looked upset but not overly distressed. And then as cars moved in and out, I noticed she had a flat tyre. And if I had been a bit more capable, I think I would have offered to go and help, but I knew that if I went to help, she might find herself in bigger trouble than she'd started with. <laughs> so I sat and watched, and sure enough, a few moments later, two young tradies came out of the cafe and started talking with her. And she got animated and opened up the car, and they pulled out the spare tyre, and they changed the tyre for her. It was beautiful to watch. 
They didn't know her, she didn't know them. They saw what was going on. They said, oh, we can do that. I was very grateful because I couldn't. I wanted to go and buy them a coffee, but I thought, no. Because in a funny kind of way, they saw an opportunity for glory and they wanted in. They wanted to participate in the life-giving opportunity that was there. There was no tangible reward for their efforts. No monies or goods changed hands. They walked away from a grateful mother. And they had big smiles on their faces. They had received that glory, the sheer joy of making a difference, of being helpful. See, Paul's realisation that a mystery that has been long hidden in plain sight had been revealed with stunning clarity in Jesus. It meant an entirely new way of engaging relationship with God and all ultimate realities. No longer are we to blindly follow rules. We are to be people of a transformed heart. And critical in this transformation is where we are headed. We are now followers of the way of Jesus. We want to do life in the same spirit in which Jesus lived, died and rose again. We want to share in the same glory that Jesus enjoyed, not a glory that the world sees. It is a true and eternal glory, not animated by envy or power, but fueled and directed by self-giving love. This is to the glory of Christ, who now invites us to join with him around his table. Thanks be to God.